0: I'm a firm believer, by the way, that if you've got all of your parents, all the parents in the community together, <laughs> you just said, hey, um, we're starting this other thing, this other kind of alternative program. And if any of you guys want to sign, I'm almost convinced you'd get 10 to 15 percent of parents right away going, yes, sign me up for that, because this thing is not working for my kids. You know, it's just not working. I, I think the whole rigor thing is overblown. I, I think it's narrative. Um, it's not conducive to learning. Schools choose the stories that they tell. Everybody has a choice in the story that they tell about education. And by the way, everything you do in school tells a story.
1: Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Ford. I'm particularly excited about our guest today, Will Richardson. I got to know Will on long bus trips, taking students on an outside excursion for a week, and he kept me company for six, seven hours at a time on these buses. Well, he didn't necessarily, but his Modern Learner's podcast did. And it really unlocked my thinking in many ways, really allowed me to see, visualize, and feel some of the possibilities in education. But most importantly, it made me question education, why we're learning, how we're learning, some of the possibilities uh, that are out there in terms of creativity and using um, uh, curiosity in order to develop learning in more sophisticated ways and increase the quality of thinking. So for me, it's a big honor to have Will on the show, and I really appreciate what he's done and certainly the time that he has given uh, to this podcast. I know he's very busy. And in the meantime, uh, I wanted to also uh, thank you, the listeners, and please leave a rating on your favorite podcast uh, distribution channel, uh, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. Uh, But in the meantime, I will leave way to my conversation with Will Richardson. So hi, Will. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us on our show. Uh, Just wanted to uh, say um, hello and uh, good morning to you in uh, cold New York. Uh, And uh, wanted to, uh, first of all, start off by uh, having you introduce yourself a little bit, but you're a little bit of uh, of a known commodity out there, but uh, beyond your background, uh, just what you've been up to and and maybe you could tell us about your transition from Modern Learners to the Big Questions Institute.
0: Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me, appreciate it. So yeah, so I'm a former public school educator. I actually was a high school English teacher for about 18 years and then a uh, supervisor of technology at a a large high school in in New Jersey for four years. Um, But then for the last 15 years or so, I've been writing, speaking, kind of traveling around the world, been very fortunate to have a voice in this conversation around how education is kind of being challenged right now, but also um, trying to rethink what it might be uh, in the future and, and this year especially has been kind of a wild ride when it comes to uh, just thinking about education, looking at schools, thinking about learning how, how uh, it's different and changing and, and uh, how uncertain everything feels right now. Uh, so, um, yeah, and and uh, about uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, um, I kind of shifted over from working with uh, Bruce Dixon and, and Missy Emler at Modern Learners, uh, which was a great four years uh, in terms of engaging people in lots of uh, really interesting conversations, which Missy is still pursuing over there, which is, uh, again, uh, one of those many conversations that we're having right now and, and places to have that. But. Um, I kind of uh, partnered up with Homa Tavingar, who is someone who I I didn't really know very well until last year, but um, found just extremely interesting and passionate about a lot of the same things that I was talking about, but also with a uh, a very, very um, high focus on diversity and equity and justice and global competence. So, um, it was a really good fit for the two of us. We kind of complement each other and we started the Big Questions Institute because we both felt like it was a moment that uh, really required some, we call it, fearless inquiry into education and social justice and a whole bunch of other things that were, were on the precipice, at least, or had been kind of bubbling under, which then exploded in 2020. And we obviously had no idea <laughs> that we were going to be starting this right before the pandemic, right before George Floyd, right before, um, you know, the the most, uh, the longest hurricane season ever. I mean, all of the things that that 2020 brought upon us um, were uh, obviously a challenge in, in a lot of different ways. So. We had one face-to-face event last year, and then we moved everything online this year, and it's been really great. Um, we've been able to connect with lots of educators from around the world, engage in some pretty heady conversations, some bold and challenging discussions about um, what the world uh, looks like right now and what that means for kids and for and for schools. And we're trying to we're trying to lead from the edge. I mean, that's one of the kind of internal phrases we use. Uh, we want to be we want to be edgy and spiky about the conversations that we have because we just feel like this is the moment. You know, um, we we have to get to those right now. We've been not asking the really existential questions about education for a long time. I think all of us are kind of feeling that we need to be talking about those things. But I think twenty twenty put that in full relief that uh, we have to now really get serious about um, uncovering the. The challenges and the problems that we have in education that we've had for a long time and then reimagining it for um, what I think everyone would agree is going to be a kind of an uncertain ride into the future.
1: And I want to get to some of these issues uh, in a moment. Uh, One of the things that I always ask every guest, and this is in order to get a shared understanding, is really what your view or, or really your question is, how do you define learning?
0: Well, so let me just say that that is the key question of our work and that one of the uh, kind of depressing things of my 15 years on the road working with schools and educators and talking to parents and kids all over the world is that very few people have coherence around an answer to that question. And, um, you know, I have two kids now, they're, they're both in their early 20s, but that incoherence in their K through 12 experience showed up every single day. Um, They'd go and they'd have to figure out what the teacher in block one thought learning was. Then they go to block two and it'd be a different definition. Block three would be something uh, altogether different again. And I I, I think it's, on one level it's fascinating that we don't ask that question at the start of, uh, to to kind of create the foundation for all of our decision-making. I mean if you're not if you're not creating budgets based on your definition of learning why not if you're not hiring people based on your definition of what learning is and so I mean I've gotten to the point now where I don't really I mean I care how you define learning but what I care more about is that you have done that work that you have some coherence on if you want to define learning as getting great test scores great do that right but then that's your work, you know, and so everybody understands that that's the way we're going to do it. If you want to define learning as something much different, though, where it's more around um, the you know, desire to continue to learn, to, to continue to discover, to be curious, that learning really is about um, what happens when we find something that we're passionate about or interested in that we want to solve a problem around or ask, answer a question around then that's a totally different definition. And if you have coherence around that, then you create conditions that lead to learning in that context, right? So um, obviously I I kind of fall in the camp of the latter definition there, right? Um, But uh, if, if, if you've articulated that definition of learning, then you have to look at your practice totally differently, right? You have to then audit everything that you do in the context of that definition. And I think that's where we're at right now. I think a lot of people are, are in education are beginning to realize that the lack of a definition of learning or a very shallow kind of uninterrogated definition of learning has really led now to a lot of irrelevance and a lot of exhaustion and, and boredom and all sorts of other things that outcomes that we don't really want, stress, anxiety, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and that now they have to go, yeah, let's really get to the core. Let's really try to unpack what we mean by that word. So in our work, um, you know, that's a starting point. Um, And it's, okay, well, if we're going to have a conversation about curriculum, let's make sure we all understand what we mean by learning. If we're going to have a conversation about assessment, let's make sure (laughs) that it's driven by a shared coherent definition of what that word means. And by the way, I started thinking about that um, seriously only about seven or eight years ago, which is is kind of incredible when you think about the fact that I was a 25 year educator, you know, and really didn't think about that definition too much. A friend of mine, Gary Steger, sent me a book called uh, And What Do You Mean by Learning by a guy by the name of Seymour Sarson, And I read it and it just changed my brain. I just went, yeah, why aren't we asking that question? Because it impacts everything that we do.
1: And so I remember I read that book, and I remember I read that book listening to one of your podcasts that brought it up, and that book also had a very big influence on me. And to this day, nevertheless, um, I still find that nobody wants that. So from my point of view, nobody wants to ask that question because it actually requires a lot of effort, and it's easier to organize sports days than it is to sit around and get through the conflict of asking what learning is. I don't know how it is around you guys, but I feel like COVID is actually an excuse to say, oh my gosh, this is not the right year to do that. Are you finding that? Or are or, you, or, because or, it's open?
0: Yeah, and let me answer that in a second. But I wanna go back to what you said before about people being kind of, um, you know, averse to having that conversation. I don't think it's because it's too difficult. I think it's because they're scared. To be honest with you, I don't think (laughs) I don't think answering that question is actually that hard. I mean, we're all learners. There's a lot of common sense when you when you step back and go, okay, so what in my own personal learning, you know, what is it that leads me to learn? I mean, we can name those conditions pretty easily. I have a passion about something. This really interests me. I want to learn more about it. Are the people who are around me want to learn more? I want to create. I want to share. Right? All those kind of motivations that we ourselves have for learning. I don't think that's rocket science. In fact, I think there's like so much research that's just totally, you know, irrelevant almost because we, we make this too complicated. But the problem is if we really sat down and we really articulated learning as we know it happens with us, it would force us again to ask, well, why do we group kids by age? Why do we silo out subjects? why do we do 45 minutes of science and then 45 minutes of social studies and 45 minutes of French and for that those those things don't occur in the natural learning world so it would require us to just kind of say oh yeah okay well if we're really serious about you know honoring how people learn then we got to rethink just about everything that we do systemically in schools and that's a really scary really It is difficult, but it's a really scary conversation to have as well. In terms of COVID, I agree with you. People are exhausted and they just don't have the bandwidth. And I totally get it, right? I totally understand this year is hopefully an outlier where we're just trying to survive right now. And everybody is just stressed. And I mean, I've had the unbelievably good fortune of working with a group of um, international school heads on, we've been doing calls every Thursday morning now for the tomorrow morning will be 41 weeks that we've been just getting together for an hour and talking some sometimes upwards of 100 people but mostly like 50 60 people and I can't tell you how complex <laughs> I mean you you can look from the outside and kind of think yeah this is really work right now you know trying to figure out what do I do tomorrow what what happens if this happens what you know what if the government said but being there in those conversations it's incredible the problem solving that these people are doing on a daily basis it's incredible the learning that they're doing on a regular basis right um and in many ways i think this may be the most powerful learning experience most of those people have ever had and at some point, I've reminded them of this, or I've asked them this, you know, before, but I've stopped doing it because I know they're just exhausted. But at some point, I'm going to go back to them and ask this question again, you know, why doesn't the learning in your classrooms look more like the learning you've been doing over the last 41 weeks? Because you guys are totally in on this, you know, you are totally engaged, you are problem solving, you are passionate, these, you know, the, the learning this stuff matters to you. Why does learning in your <laughs> classrooms look so different, right? And it's a hard question, but that's, yeah, that's the one we need to ask. But yeah, people are really tired right now and I get it. I totally understand.
1: And, and I bet you that somebody took somebody else's idea, implemented it and wasn't blamed for academic dishonesty. On
0: the head. Oh no! Oh, absolutely, <laughs> they're stealing left and right, and they—that's—that's that's why we get together every Thursday morning for an hour. And people will go like, you know, one, Alan will go, yeah. So I tried this, and it worked. And someone in the chat will go, I'm taking that. I'm going to try that. You know, that's—that's that's how learning happens, though, right? We share with one another. It's a very social thing. It's not ha- something that happens in isolation. And I will say, I do think that if there is one positive and i think there are a couple positives that have come out of this right but i think if one of them one of them that i would i would uh or or that i would sense pretty strongly is that a lot of people now understand the type of learning and community you can create in online spaces i think um there were some real skeptics about you know what what value um that Zoom sessions or whatever tool you're using, you know, but that that what value could bring that those tools could bring to learning. I think a lot of people now are going, yeah, this is pretty powerful uh, in a lot of of different ways. When you have especially people who um, are somewhat isolated to begin with, but then find themselves quarantined and really isolated, you know, Um, it's a a great way to bring people together. And I also think that a lot of um, school heads and educators have realized that some kids really flourish in these environments. And I can't imagine that we're ever gonna go back to a time in schools now where there isn't an option for kids to do this. Um, if, if we don't give kids, some, those kids who really take to this and, and do well in these environments, if we don't offer them that opportunity, I think we're doing them a disservice as well.
1: And it all brings us back to this idea. And, you know, how do we know if they're doing well, even measuring that, or do we need to measure that? I mean, it's a fundamental question. And, and a lot of people might say, well, hold on a second. If we give them more options, if, if learning happens in a way that's collaborative, how can I tell that little Johnny over there is making progress? Because, um, you know, that's ultimately my job is to, to allow for that. If you're selling bottles of water, you understand where you're making progress because you can measure that with sales. And that's, clearly and obviously the, the the whole point of having it be you know quantitatively derived but how do you suggest that people get over this um, this 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 lack of control really about feeling progress for their kids and and, and feeling maybe fulfillment in the fact that they're helping or guiding these kids to progress
0: well you can't quantitate learning the way you can selling water bottles you just can't do it as much as we want to try to do it um, and, you know, it really doesn't matter what the assessment or what the uh, outcome looks like or the expectation looks like, whether it's a test, even a portfolio, project, whatever. Anytime that we decide to put a game, I'm sorry, anytime that we decide to put a grade on any of that stuff, it then immediately becomes a game for the kids, right? And and I learned this when I was in the classroom. I thought, well, I'm going to do portfolio assessment because I don't want to do, you know, those, those kind of tricks my kids were kind of trying to figure out, okay, so how do I get an A on the portfolio, right? <laughs> so, you know, assessment in and of itself is somewhat problematic. And I, th- I think, again, we have to go back and, well, how do we assess ourselves, right? How do we assess our own progress? How does that show up? Well, we solve problems or we fail, or we collaborate with other people and we reflect and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, we're, we're trying to quantify Um, again, something that is, uh, uh, we're we're trying to put an unnatural assessment on something that's just a very natural thing that we do. And I think, again, that's one of the distinctions that people are afraid to really deal with is that schools in and of themselves are very unnatural places for learning, right? And, And so a lot of the systems and a lot of the structures that we use, we have to just kind of look kind of away from the fact that they don't really do they can't really do what we're asking them to do. Um, so why? what if we didn't assess in the sense that we needed to put a grade on everything? I think competency-based, right? You're seeing a lot of people move more toward competency-based assessment, which I think is a good step. I think that at least that reduces the, the kind of uh, competition piece for a number or the, the gaming the game-y, uh, side of it. Um, because you know, again, in the system that we have, and, and the reality that we have is that we need some ways to show what kids can do, so that if they want to pursue a college degree, or if they want to, you know, if they go out into the workforce or whatever else, there has to be some way of saying, well, this is what children can do. But grades are the worst way to do that, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, so we need to we need to again just kind of think about well, what's common sense about assessment what's common sense about the way that we evaluate our ability to do something well we you know we we look at how focused are we how you know what did we try what worked what didn't work what what did we try after that how did we kind of move toward the goal even though we maybe didn't achieve the goal um it's it's just nuanced and it's messy but again trying to trying to quantify that um i think just sets up a whole bunch of, of problematic um motivations that um that kids then just embrace because you know school becomes a game in that sense
1: but it's easy uh and even oh, it's easier much easier. easier i mean that's and sometimes that's the problem I mean, the mastery transcript consortium are doing you know beautiful things with visuals and so forth at the end of the day, if you are an admissions officer at some school that's getting tens of thousands of applicants and you're spending six minutes per application, there is just that systemic issue of how do you assess quality when it, that takes time? Whereas quantity, you just get, get rid of someone if, if, they don't, if they don't meet your GPA. So, so how do we even get rid of, 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 of that issue or, or solve that problem?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really great question, and um, you know, I know Mastery has done a lot of uh, work with college admissions officers, and and you know, learning from them in terms of what they would accept, what they need, those types of things, and I, I think they've gotten to a point where they feel like they could uh, whatever they're sending with their kids uh, is it qualifies in terms of time and in, in terms of uh, what it shows about what kids can do. Um, yeah, but, you know, I, I I don't know. It's it's a very, very difficult question because obviously embedded in it is this idea that we want every kid to go to college or we want every kid to pursue another degree, which that conversation is becoming more and more interesting, right? I, I think that's another big question that, that a lot of people are asking, which is, well why are, why are we doing that to kids when now they can go and they can begin to create and they can begin to solve problems and, and do all of that stuff, um, for much less money, um, for, you know, to kind of get self-educated in many ways, but to also be transparent about their work and collaborate and and get credentialed now in lots of other different ways. You see micro-credentials and all sorts of different ways people are looking and saying, yeah, you can, you can do that, and it didn't cost you twenty thousand dollars to go to college to figure that out. Um, and I think also that just the value of higher ed um, is under question. Um, I know I have, you know, I have a son who thankfully has a um, athletic scholarship to go to college. Um, his school costs for those who don't have athletic scholarships upwards of seventy five thousand dollars a year, and I can tell you that based on two years of his college experience it ain't worth it. <laughs> it's not even close. The academic piece is not even close to being worth it, right? There's no way that that we would spend that money. Um, you, you know what I'm saying, right? So there's a value proposition. I don't know. It's complex. There's all sorts of layers to that. Um, but again, I think that, that what's happening is there are some new narratives that are cropping up in terms of, okay, so what happens after high school? And I mean, I just think that there are lots of new uh, emerging mm-hmm. pathways for kids when they leave high school. Some of them might be higher education, but there are other ways to get credentialed. You you see that uh, um, certain big corporations now are rolling their own degree programs out that are much less expensive and that are much more aligned with the types of skills and literacies that uh, they need their workers to have. Um, you see a lot of kind of self. Uh, self-aggregated badges and credentials, micro-credentials, and things that um, are people are putting together. To especially in like the programming field, where um, you know you can pretty much build your own uh, skill set and and then show that you can do that type of work to get hired for programming jobs and things like that. So some of that doesn't transfer over to other occupations, obviously. But I just think that there's a general sense that look. Um, the whole pursuit of this college diploma that isn't quite as valuable and is increasingly expensive um, shouldn't be the only way that you can um, again credential or show what you're able to do and in many cases a college diploma doesn't really show what you can do anyway so it's a it's a it's an interesting conversation and one that um, is going to Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how
1: it plays out. And in K-12, sometimes I feel, and especially in the international school circuit where where, where I run around, uh, there's this idea that, of course, university is the only place where bright kids can go to if they want any kind of success and happiness in life. And linked to that is this value on the concept of academic rigor. Now, I I don't really know what academic rigor is. I know what rigor means, and that is... uh, uh, you know, generally uh, inflexibility, uh, suffering, uh, rigidity, and so <laughs> forth. So, so I'm not. I don't right. understand why they define things as academic rigor. It doesn't sound fun to me at all. But what is academic rigor, and why is it this holy grail? When in fact, you go get a job, if you write an email that's longer than five sentences, no one's going to read it.
0: Well, look. A lot of this is narrative, and a lot of a lot of this is uh, um, technology and. And curriculum, and you know, uh, tutoring companies and stuff, testing companies having a lot of investment in that narrative, and saying, "Oh, you know, well, kids need to have a rigorous experience, and so here's more curriculum, or here's whatever else." Look, I think that rigor, to me, uh, it's going to sound weird, but as you were saying that, um, I almost align rigor to beauty. Um, I mean, and that's something that we don't talk a lot about in education right we don't very often say wow that's really beautiful work and when we look at things that are beautiful that people have created that's a lot of rigor (laughs) that's that's kind of embedded in that right so um. Yeah, I, I think the whole rigor thing is overblown. I, I think it's narrative. It's this, this mind map that we have that says, this mental model that we have that says, oh, it has to be hard work. You have to suffer through it. You have to, you know, rrr, rrr, rrr. that's just not, um, it's not conducive to learning. It's not great for kids. It adds a lot of stress and anxiety on everybody concerned. And uh, it's almost impossible to achieve to anyone's Uh, satisfaction when you keep just raising the rigor bar, you know. Um, So I I think, again, we have so much invested in this long-standing, deeply rooted traditional story that we tell about what an education is, that you got to go to school, you got to be with kids your own age, you got to, you know, go to class for this many hours, and the tests are going to look like this, and you have to do your homework, and blah, blah, blah. I, I just think it's, um, it's a false narrative. It's one that is more detrimental to learning than, than supportive of learning, but it's efficient and it's embedded. And so we continue to employ it. And, um, but again, what I think is happening right now is a lot of those stories, a lot of those narratives are breaking. I mean, you look at higher ed right now, and there's no question, you cannot look at higher ed right now, go, there's a lot of stuff breaking in higher ed right now. And and a lot of that is because of COVID, but that was breaking already, right? There was a lot of stuff that was just not not sustainable in terms of the way we think about it. Not just the money piece of it, but you know, the 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 credentialing piece, the value piece of it as well.
1: What about in terms of the parents and what they want? Um, how, do, how do the parents who don't necessarily live day by day in the pedagogy, in the, in the what is school questions, they're, they're, they're voters, they're taxpayers, they're people who pay this, uh, the tuitions. What is the way to bring them on board? Or is it just the fact that they see their kids on these Zoom classes and they're like, oh, wait a second, this is what's going on?
0: Yeah, well, I think that there've been a lot. There's a great, great article in The Atlantic this week called... Um, school before covid wasn't that great anyway right or there was a headline something like that and i think what a lot of what a lot of parents are seeing when their kids are sitting on zoom is just how awful (laughs) it not not just the zoom piece of it is but the work is you know and there's just like, like this mindless kind of stuff trying to learn stuff that the only reason you're learning it is so you can take a test on it stuff that you'll never use in your lives right um, so I think that parents are, are becoming a little bit more aware. There's also now statistics that say upwards of maybe 10% in the States now of parents are going to try to homeschool, which is a pretty significant number, probably will drop down once things settle out, you know, but still we're probably going to go up a few notches of, of parents who are just going to opt out and say, um, yeah, we're not going to do it that way any longer because it just doesn't seem to work. But look, the, so the parent thing... The parent conversation is something that school heads have to be having on an ongoing basis, leaders, you know, teachers even, but communities have to be having on an ongoing basis over time to build the capacity of parents to understand that when you begin to do inquiry based or project based learning, uh, self-directed, giving kids more agency, having them do more presentations instead of tests, you know, all those types of things, right? Right um that they understand why you're doing that you know parents parents don't have by and large they're not and i don't mean this in a bad way but they're not educated as to the way the world looks today and what the world will demand in the future it's not a con- that they talk about because they just have again this mental model of what school's supposed to look like and they want their kid to meet that model in their heads right so as much as as much as they may complain about how some of that old traditional way of doing school isn't that great they still find comfort in it because you know they understand well if my kid can succeed at this thing then there's a road we have to be creating different narratives for parents and i think that we start by doing that in small ways um i've seen a lot of schools which i think is an interesting uh attempt or an interesting step, try to do schools within schools. I'm a firm believer, by the way, that if you've got all of your parents, all the parents in the community together, and this may be a little bit different for independent schools, because if you brought everybody, if you could, big long, big zooms, <laughs> you just said, Hey, um, we're starting this other thing, this other kind of alternative program. We won't call it that, but we we'll, we're starting this other way of thinking about learning over here. And if any of you guys want to sign, I'm almost convinced you'd get 10 to 15% of parents right away going, yes, sign me up for that, because this thing is not working for my kids, you know, this is just not working. And and so when you can do that and tell different stories, that's when you begin to build capacity, that's when you begin to build interest in changing it up. And um, I think if you can, if you can do small things like that, highlight them, by the way, one of the other things we talk a lot about in our work is that schools choose the stories that they tell. Everybody has a choice in the story that they tell about education. And by the way, everything you do in school tells a story about what you believe, what learning is, what success is, you know, achievement, all that kind of stuff, right? So we've worked with a lot of schools to help them choose different stories. Um, For instance, um, you know, if you get six national merit semifinalists, you know, which here in the States is kind of a big deal, well, you can tell that story, or you can tell the story about the kid who went out and invented something to get rid of the scum that's in the pond in the back of the, you know, in, in the community, right? And a lot of people now are choosing not to tell the story about the merit scholars, not to tell the stories about the high test scores or about, you know, the, the college acceptances, but to tell stories about kids doing real work in the world, solving real problems, talking passionately about it, and and then also... Um, reaping the benefits of that in from, you know, colleges, from community, from whatever else. So um, yeah, we need to, we need to provide different narratives right now. And I think uh, one of the good things, again, another, maybe the other good thing about 2020 is that it did force a lot of people to start different concepts of what school might look like. You have a lot of parent groups, you know, getting together and say, well, we're just going to pull six or seven kids together and can do a pod. And I just want to, You know, say that that's a privileged way of thinking about it. Not every kid can get into a pod. But again, from a conceptual standpoint, it's just a way of saying, well, yeah, okay, we could do that, or we could do that, or we could do that. We don't necessarily have to do this, right? That there are options to that. So um, it's about building capacity.
1: And even within the ability to go fix the scum problem, you have to have space to do that, time to do that, because kids who are doing all these AP classes or all these IBDP classes, you know, a a diploma program, they don't have the time because they're stressed out. So they it's funny because we take our smartest kids, and I use, you know, inverted commas here, and we work them to death so much that they actually can't be creative. And they can't go out and have the free time to just be bored and imagine. It's complete contradiction. It hurts society as a whole.
0: So why do you do that?
1: Yeah, good question. I know. That, you. that question, yeah, that question. I don't know, but that question, which sounds so obvious, is not for so many people. No. Why is that not being posed?
0: Well, so it's it's a, it's a actually a pretty easy answer. And I'm say you, specifically you. But I'm just talking about why do we do that, right? The, there's a book called At What Cost by David Gleason. And he went and he asked people, why do you do that? Why do you do that? And basically, they said, well, if we're honest about it, if we stopped sleep depriving them, if we stopped giving them, you know, funneling them into AP courses and if we stopped piling homework on them, then we wouldn't be seen as seen as rigorous. We wouldn't we would lose our reputations. We would not be seen as, you know, um, prestigious. And you kind of think about that and you go, yeah, that's probably right. And, and so, I mean, it's like the first step is to own it. And so, if you can own it, yeah, we're we're going to continue to make them stressed and anxious and probably depressed and maybe suicidal because <laughs> we don't want to lose our standing in the community. Okay, well, that's a good starting point at least then for some conversations that go like, okay, what if we we can't we can't do that. So, and and again, th- that then leads to hopefully some conversations with parents, community members, teachers, students, everybody kind of getting together, going, look, we're. We understand what's happening to you. Here's why we're doing it. This is unsustainable. We can't keep doing this. Let's figure out a different path forward. But you know, again, most of uh, most of the stress and pressure, especially right now, especially for independent school heads, they're fearful that their parents are going to leave them, um, and that uh, you know, not just because they can't get face-to-face classrooms back, um, and parents are skeptical of the money being paid. You know, are that the online piece of it is actually worth the same amount of money, but um, they're they're really fearful of doing different things in the classroom when it comes to learning, because the narrative is so ingrained in parents um, parents' minds, and they will probably choose to go elsewhere. So it's 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 excruciatingly difficult to make those changes happen.
1: So they're worried about getting people through the door. So they will look for quick solutions yeah. to be like everybody else to do more of the same thing yeah. and the risk and do something innovative uh, to do something different. Um, they, you know that they're, they're fearful of it, I imagine.
0: Yeah. In, in my darkest moments, I really don't know that it's possible for schools to change, um, especially a traditional ones that's built on a traditional narrative. To try to move it to a much more progressive way of thinking about learning, much more natural, much more you know, kind of real world way of thinking about it. Um, you know, it's easier to build build for that than it is to change for that. If we're honest about it, that doesn't mean it's easy to build for it, but it's <laughs> easier than trying to take a hundred years of of tradition and story and turn it on its head. I only know of a couple schools in the world that have done that um, with effect. Um, a lot of them try to do it. They get a little, where, little ways down the road, but then the head leaves, or you know something happens, the new board, and they kind of regress back to the mean, right? Back to the norm. Um, but again, I think you know, as I said before, a lot of these new schools popping up on the edges. That's a very interesting fertile space right now um, for for education and for learning and for thinking about it differently. So we'll see if that scales.
1: Thanks, Will. This is part of the show where uh, I ask you what's on your mind, what are you thinking about, and
0: what's next for you? Well, um, yeah, I mean, first of all, again, thanks so much for, for taking the time. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just think this is, as much as it's a very challenging moment, it's a very interesting moment, too, and I think there are some opportunities that we can take out of this that will um, uh, potentially change what happens in classrooms um, but I, I think it does require and that's why we called it the big questions institute right it, it does require that we, we we go to those existential places that are very difficult for us to go to um, i think over the next uh, 10 20 years a lot more people are going to be trying to um, trying to live in the tension that exists between what we believe learning is, but what we actually do in schools. And that's where this big tension is, right? Because it's very difficult to parse practice with belief when we really sit down and talk about how learning happens. Um, and that's our work, you know, to try to help people engage in those conversations, to start those conversations and, and hopefully make them sustainable. Um, so, we're, you know, the the professional learning that we're doing is, is aimed at at uh, again, uh, those, those bolder, maybe um, more willing uh, or, or the people who sense the urgency a little bit more to start doing those, those types of, uh, uh, to do that work. And, and also the idea that I think what we've learned in 2020 is that professional learning can't be, it's not an event any longer. I mean, people will still go to conferences and, and, that, and that type of stuff, but it's not gonna be to the extent to what it was. There's just no way. So we have to think differently about um, the way we learn as as professionals as well, and we're trying to build some frameworks around that too. So anyway, that's it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. Twenty twenty one is going to be a very interesting year, obviously. And um, I don't. I hope we don't go back to normal, <laughs> because again, normal wasn't that great to begin with. But. Um, I hope we can carve out some bandwidth and some space to think really differently about schools in 2021 moving forward.
1: Thanks so much, Phil. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Appreciate it. Cheers.
1: This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next, we have Tanya Sheckley, the founder of Up Academy. And I'm uh, particularly happy to have spoken with Tanya uh, earlier this week because she represents uh, the primary school Um, and that is something that we haven't necessarily explored so much on the show which has quite a bit to say about uh, how we can create a culture around project-based learning around inclusion, around challenging kids to be curious and creative Uh, but I want to thank Will Richardson again, I'm very honored that he uh, would take the time to come on the podcast Uh, please look us up on www.coconut-thinking.design Always look forward to conversations, and in the meantime, we will talk to you soon.